0: listening to flux pod my name is matthew perpetua in this episode i'm going to talk to rob sheridan who is an artist a multidisciplinary artist who is best known for uh being the art director of Nine Inch Nails for, uh, I think, about 15 or 16 years, something like that. But uh, we're going to talk a lot about that and how he came into that. It's kind of an uh, interesting story. and um, the, the sheer range of things he did uh, working in collaboration with Front Reznor, including uh, building out and designing all of the the live visuals for nine Nail shows which i think are some of the best i've personally have ever seen in my life uh he's also done a lot of other projects uh, he does he's a glitch artist he has a comic with uh, dc comics vertigo called high level and uh you know this is going to cover a lot of things rob's an incredibly cool and interesting guy um just a reminder that uh, That this show is a independently produced thing And if you like What you're hearing Please uh, tell people about it uh, Word of mouth is pretty important And if you want to hear All of the episodes of the show Besides the ones that come out on Wednesdays for free the Saturday episodes are Patreon Subscribers only uh, Patreon.com Anyway Let's get to it. Let's get to the show with Rob Sheridan. All right. Uh, Rob, uh, tell me or tell tell the audience who you are and what you do. Well, uh, my name is Rob Sheridan.
1: I am an artist, writer, designer, Um I've worked in, um, all kinds of fields from, uh, music production to, um, well, visual music production, that is to graphic design, um, to comic books, to a little bit of everything uh, in the visual field over the past 20 years.
0: Yeah. And you got your start working, uh, with Nine Inch Nails, right? I did. Yeah. Professionally. Um, I, I yeah.
1: Professionally. I was, um, I was just a wee lad at the time. Um, I was going to, uh, it was my first year of art school um, in New York. I was 19 years old and um, I got uh, drafted into the world of Nine Inch Nails because of a fan site that I'd built in high school. And uh, I quit college and uh, just went off on a crazy adventure and and ended up uh, being Nine Inch Nails' art director for 15 years.
0: And that pretty much entailed like all visual elements of the band.
1: Eventually, yeah, I, I was originally I was hired as kind of like the kid to update their new website. You know, I didn't, I wasn't um, hired as an art director. I, I didn't even have much experience in that in that field. Um, but as time went on, Trent and I just got along really well and, and kind of spoke the same language creatively. And and he started to trust my creative instincts more and more. And eventually I became the the overall uh, creative director for the whole enterprise, including Trent's solo work, um, How to Star Angels, and other things we did, including Beats Music, working on uh, marketing campaigns for Fincher movies. So pretty much everything visual um, I was in charge of uh, and marketing and live production as well.
0: What was the first thing that you did beyond doing the website? Like what was the first like big leap that you made? Um, it would, it would kind of, you know, in those days, I was,
1: I was young and I was just trying um, a little bit of everything. And, and Trent likes to keep a small team. He liked to have everything really in house. At the time, um, we were down in New Orleans. Trent had a studio down there, and had everyone who worked with him like had a, a room in this huge studio, and would just it was like this big creative space down there where people were just always working on stuff, and. He liked the idea of you know being able to be involved and, and produce things like websites and merchandise and and eventually album art and stuff like that um, right from within his kind of camp. So it started out with small things like I would design some some new things for the website and then I would design some T-shirts and then I started weighing in on the Fragility live production and contributing some stuff to that and. Uh, the next thing I know, when it was time to put out this kind of follow-up album to The Fragile, he was like, well, why don't you just do the art? And I was like, <laughs> okay. You know, and that was like, you know, dream come true for for young me. And uh, it, it just kind of kept snowballing from there into more and more responsibilities.
0: Um, so when you were working on the Fragility tour, that was kind of – so you had sort of an apprenticeship as you kind of moved into working in – Uh, live production.
1: Yeah. So um, when I first came on board in 1999, uh, they were in the middle of recording the fragile and um, uh, Trent ended up uh, picking David Carson, uh, famous graphic designer to do the um, artwork for this album, the fragile that they're working on. And so I worked a lot with David and learned a lot about how he worked and his you know his design, and that was that was very that was very exciting and, and educational for me. It really changed uh, and formed a lot of my ideas about design working with him. And so, kind of coming up underneath Trent and David Carson, and then Roy Bennett on the live stage production side of things. He's longtime Nails lighting director. Um, I kind of learned so much just by throwing myself in, you know, um, and gradually kind of took over.
0: Yeah. I I think the thing that's probably the most mind blowing to me is just the sheer vol. I guess the sheer range of things that you had to kind of pick up and learn as you went along and you're doing this at a pretty high level with a lot of eyes on you. Um, So like what were, what was like the, some of the harder parts of that learning curve?
1: I think, you know, the imposter syndrome was a was a huge um, burden on me all the time, being this kind of young nobody kid and working with these like really heavyweight industry people. And I, you know, I had to prove myself. I wasn't like, I wasn't meant to go on to be the art director. I wasn't gifted anything. You know, I, I got to where I um, ended up being by proving myself over and over again to these people who were way more experienced than me and way older than me. And, and, um, through all that, I kind of always had this feeling of like, I'm just faking it. You know, I'm just, I, I shouldn't be here. This, you know, this isn't, this isn't something that me un- inexperienced young kid should be doing. This is for professionals, but sometimes I'd just be like, you know what? I'm really proud of what I made here. I think it's better than, you know, this other person who was, you know, potentially going to design a certain album or whatever that ended up being me doing it. And, you know, you have to like, you have to start to believe in yourself when everyone else is believing in you, but it's, it's hard sometimes when you, when you get thrown into that environment as the new kid.
0: What was the first contact with Trent? Like when he reached out to you, like, cause you were doing the fan site and didn't, did the, I guess the fan site kind of evolved into the regular site.
1: No, it didn't actually. Um, it was totally separate. I was contacted by um, Trent's publicist. Um, basically, Trent had a, a a tech company working on their very first website. Nine Shadows didn't have a website at the time. Most bands didn't in 1999. And um, they had already started working on some version of a website. But Trent wanted um, someone young who knew the music and was a fan to kind of be – the the interface between yeah. the band and the fans basically hang out down at the studio, in new Orleans, take photos, update the website, kind of really be the go between and, and engage in this new website. Um, so it was, I guess in 1999 terms, it was kind of a social media manager job really at the beginning, um, before social media, of course. Um, and once I started getting involved down there, um, I ended up becoming the website designer and all this other stuff. But initially, um, when I was, um, uh, drafted in by the publicist, they flew down, um, five people from various backgrounds, a couple others who had done fan sites as well to new Orleans. And we all met with, uh, Trent and his group as manager and everything one by one. And, um, Trent and I just kind of clicked. Um, we just it <laughs> that was situation. T- I mean, that,
0: that situation sounds like a weird reality show. It was. I mean, like it, <laughs> it was
1: literally like, like they didn't even take us to the studio at first. They took us to a hotel in downtown New Orleans, and like the, like there was like a panel of people, including Trent and his manager and like other people on his team, sitting in chairs in this hotel room. And they brought me in to sit down and stare at these people. Um, but pretty quickly, like Trent and I just started talking about doom. We were both like really into Doom and Quake at the time. So we started talking about playing Quake together and um, just got along really well. And, and I wasn't I wasn't really sure because some of the other uh, candidates had more hands-on music industry experience than I did. But um, I don't know. I guess he got a good feeling and, uh, and went with me. And then I was just like, well... Sorry, mom. You know that art school that we saved up so hard to go to? Well, I'm
0: not going anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm moving to New Orleans. <laughs> but but the, the whole entire point of going to art school is the like the, the hope is that you maybe something like this happens. So
1: yeah, and and I didn't even end
0: up with any student debt because I left too soon. So that was good. <laughs> Which school did you go to? Pratt Institute. Okay, I went to Parsons around the same time. I think we're about the same age. Oh, okay, nice. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I actually did go through and it did happen to that. So, yeah. <laughs> um, right. So I think of all the work you did, the thing that was most mind-blowing to me was the, the live productions that you had a pretty heavy hand on. Um, I think particularly Lights in the Sky, which I think was around 2008. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it was. Um and uh, this is so hard to do because, like, this is a non-visual format. We can't really even show like a YouTube video of like here's what it looks like. But <laughs> I, I really recommend that people do look it up because it is pretty well documented on YouTube.
1: There, there's a um, there's a fan-made film. It's called Another Version of the Truth. If you search YouTube, you'll find it. Um, we've filmed a bunch of shows and then we put all the raw footage out online after the tour and let fans do whatever they want with it. And this really organized group of fans basically crowdsourced producing their their own entire concert film out of it and you can watch the whole thing on on youtube yeah it's, that's probably probably the best way to um, to see that tour
0: beginning to end Right. And I think that the thing that is incredibly impressive about it, and I feel like uh, that tour and then the the big uh, arena tour that was after that for Hesitation Marks, I can't remember what the name of that one was. uh, Tension. uh, Tension. Uh, They're both pretty heavy on kind of like these practical, uh, like lighting effects, and then also like a lot of like screens and scrims. And uh, like, what kind of went into those? Like what, like what, like how did all that come together? Um, by the time,
1: you know, we got to lights in the sky, which, um, many fans point to as the like, kind of like real important groundbreaking one for them in terms of nine Snails tours. And, uh, certainly everything we did after lights in the sky was very much, um, born out of it and, and evolved from it. But lights in the sky itself was very evolved from, a number of tours that we'd done before it going back all the way to fragility. And what we would do is just learn kind of new tricks on each tour from a lot of experimenting. And when we'd go to do another tour, we'd have this kind of like list of like these really cool things that we kind of sort of figured out, but it would be like, what if we had better hardware, we could do this really well. So it would tend to kind of build up tour to tour And we'd take everything we learned and threw away everything that didn't work, and just refine them and make them better and better. And with lights in the sky, we had uh, this our our longtime uh, lighting director, Roy Bennett, who was with Nine Snails since the Self Destruct tour in the nineties. He um, he suggested this company called Moment Factory um, out of Montreal that does really incredible interactive. Uh, productions. They do a lot of, um, at the time they were doing a lot of Cirque du Soleil and now they do a lot of like large scale installations where you walk through something and and it reacts, um, things like that. And they brought this like whole bag of new toys that a lot of them are kind of commonplace now, but at the time we hadn't seen tech like this before where we can incorporate uh, real-time visuals and sensors into the show to take some of the stuff that we'd been pantomiming and turn it into actual interactive effects. And that working with those guys and having these new elements to play with really kicked that tour up a notch.
0: So like what were uh, elements of the show or I guess moments in the show that would kind of be good examples. Something thing that comes to mind immediately is Echoplex where he was kind of engaging with the screen. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So we, we had a, a number of sensors on the stage and with Echoplex, uh, again, hard to describe this in a non-visual medium, but um, basically we built a drum machine on one of the screens on the stage. And when Josh, the drummer, would come out and reach at the screen on the on these virtual buttons, he would activate them and he could build the beat in a real-time drum machine on stage. And it was very impressive, but no one had seen anything like that before at a rock show. So the trick was convincing people that it was actually interactive and that he wasn't just memorizing, you know, a timing thing. Um, So we had, we had to kind of like work with them and choreograph them a little bit. So we'd come out and like, you know, experiment with the beat a little before we built it out and you'd still get people being like, wow, that was really cool. How he like, how he, how do you memorize how to like touch those all at the right time? We're like, no, 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 it's really, it's interactive. And, and that, that was one of kind of one of the challenges of showing the audience and communicating that these were real-time effects when they'd never seen something like that at a rock show
0: before. Have you seen anyone else do that particular trick since? I've not seen the drum machine trick. No. Cause that, um, really, that really feels like that would be ripe for a lot of different types of artists, especially electronic ones who have to play these big rooms.
1: Yeah, you'd think so. Um, I mean, maybe someone's done it, but I haven't heard about it. Definitely, interactivity is uh, with video has become a lot more um, accessible um, ever since the Connect became uh, w- widely available. Um, we were doing Lights on the Sky pre-Connect, and all the sensors were custom built, and they were they were janky. You know, they they would it was too easy to get water on them on stage, or someone kicked the plug out or something, and. You know, Trent would go up there and start doing the motions to try and make the screen move, and it wouldn't, and he'd get pissed off. <laughs> there were always problems with it. If you if you feel like you saw a perfect show on that tour, you probably didn't. But <laughs> you, usually people couldn't tell when little things went wrong.
0: Uh, one of the things that's really stuck with me, and I guess this show is like 12 nearly 13 years ago. Now I saw the show that was at, uh, East that's Rutherford, crazy. New Jersey. But the thing that's really stuck in my head for a really long time is the visuals for the big come down and that have like these kind of hanging fluorescent lights that are kind of being batted around like, um, Oh, so
1: you, saw, you, you saw one of the ones when we still had the lights,
0: right? I was just about to say like, <laughs> so yeah, I, I think at some point you had to switch over to a, a different version of it.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, so one one of the fun things at the beginning of the tour is um, is sitting down with Roy Bennett, and he'll by that time have looked at um, all the album artwork and heard the new music, uh, you know, of whatever album it is we're trying to represent, and he'll start putting together some ideas, and, and most of his ideas as a lighting guy come in the form of, look at these new gadgets that we have. Look at how cool this screen is. See, this screen is kind of see-through, and it can raise up and down, and... And these panels can do this. Um, and so he, he takes us into this warehouse place of, of lighting equipment and shows all of these really fancy new things. Like, look, you can do 3D projections with smoke that blows down from a panel. And um, you can cut these curved high-res screens in any shape you want. And it's all great, great, great. And then the price tag comes. And we have to start paring it down from there. And one of the things on Lights in the Sky that he proposed – were these really cool hanging They kind of look like long fluorescent lighting tubes that would hang down vertically and they were on chains and would come down from the ceiling when they were needed and they were rugged. So they were meant to be physically interacted with by the band, you know, nine inch nails concerts gets heavy. There's a lot of physicality to the show. So this was a lighting element that the band was encouraged to bump into and knock around. And once they did, they'd start swinging and create this, really chaotic dimensional lighting space but they were they turned out to be so expensive and such a hassle to set up and it was all for just one song that, it, that <laughs> I think at some point on the tour it was like we can we can get rid of one truck if we just get rid of these damn lights and we can save a lot of time at setup and it just became not worth it anymore and those are the types of you know things that go into any production where you just have to work within your budget despite all the shiny things that the uh, that the lighting designer shows you Well, I feel very grateful to have seen that then. Yeah, we replaced them with virtual like <laughs> like just graphics that emulated the swinging lights on the screens and it still looked cool, you know. Right, you I think know. that's what, the what you're missing on you YouTube. Know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Cuz that cuz the the stuff on YouTube was filmed towards the end of the tour. Um somebody must have captured video of the original ones, but there weren't that many shows where they happened, so you got lucky.
0: Yeah, I think it was kind of towards the early part of the tour at that point, maybe the middle, something like that. But um, yeah, that, I think it's really stuck with me because it's, it's such a it's a strike that's a striking visual, even in a because I think it's uh, you are just not used to seeing people physically engage with the lighting in the show.
1: Yeah, and it's not something that's usually encouraged. <laughs> you know, you are usually dealing with very finicky and very expensive screens. You, you don't you don't exactly want anyone. Uh, aiming towards them when they start throwing, um, throwing guitars around, you know, but yeah,
0: um, I, I, I just but, remember like Trent, like kind of punching at them. Like they're punching. Yeah. So, yeah. It's yeah I, I
1: have no idea what those, those lights were made for. I don't know why they were made to be so heavy duty. Cause it's not like some company out there was like, we're designing these so they can be punched. But, um, somehow for whatever they're for, Roy happened to found them, find them. And, um, notice their durability and man it was it was a great rare opportunity to actually really allow the band to get as rough as they like to be with the um, production involved in that so it was was very tactile and and i love and very much miss um how tactile uh, the concert experience is with a good production you know
0: yeah. And you're also just using a lot of scrims and screens and layered projections. And I, I think I've seen some people play with that since, but it still feels like something where you're, you were working well, well ahead of where, uh, the tech guess where, where anybody in the industry was at the time. Yeah. And
1: a lot of that came down to, um, using things in ways they weren't meant to be used. Um, oh. So, you know, when like I said, when we're out of this warehouse looking at all the different screen technologies to try to try and figure out what hardware is gonna be in a new tour, um you know Roy would show us a screen that's kind of like a cage material. He's like, this is super low resolution, you know, the pixels are super far apart. But what we noticed is because they're so far apart, with you know, which makes it cheaper and lighter and everything but because they're so far apart the cage structure behind them leaves a lot of space that you can see through it and so we were like wait a minute this is pretty cool what if we it's meant to be a background screen but what if we brought it down in front of the band and um and that was kind of a digital upgrade to an old trick that they had done on the self destruct tour where they used an opera gauze and filmed a projection onto it with the band lit up behind so it appeared you know in the classic hurt video you can see this um and the and um, eraser from that tour, you can see the band kind of seeming like they appear in this very film-like imagery. And that was a transparent, soft opera screen. So we recreated that with digital screens. And eventually we were like asking these companies to custom make screens that were designed with lots of space in between so that we could create three layers of depth and the band would be deep inside this 3D
0: visual world. Was most of what was inspiring you coming from uh, I guess, the design world and the fine art world?
1: Yeah. Um, one thing for me is like, I really, I really liked resisting using video imagery uh, as much as possible. Um, I think I, I like to view the whole thing as more of a lighting installation, more of a James Turrell um, type thing than a, Concert that just plays graphics on their screen. Um, we we thought of the video as an extension of the lights, and the lights as the extension of the video. And it was all about creating abstract spaces and environments. And when we did ever use, um, you know, photo imagery, video imagery, you know, actual tangible things you can identify, they would be used very purposefully. You know, sometimes there would be something that feels more like a music video would play uh, for one song. And that was very much with intent uh, where the rest of the show was more of a, an abstract light installation.
0: Right. Um, And I remember also in the hesitation marks tour, the tension tour uh, there's also kind of like these kind of 3d light effects. Uh, I remember particularly for disappointed there'd be kind of like this like box that would appear and then spiral out. Uh, what were you doing for that?
1: Yeah, that, um, that was one of our coolest visual tricks that we ever pulled off. Um, we learned over the years that when we... So we have three video screens in that case, as we did on uh, Lights in the Sky. And we learned so much in Lights, of the S- Lights in the Sky about what really amplified this concept of depth when you have three different screens. And what works really well is lots of negative space with very kind of sparse, spindly visuals, and then the band lit up inside them. So there were so many, so many experiments that we did on Lights in the Sky that we didn't actually get to finish for the tour. And that's where tension picked up. And with that cube, the animators at Moment Factory had built this 3D cube and they were trying to show us that it could be like rotated, you know, with sensors or something like that. And what I saw was the potential to have the band inside the cube using the three screens. And we started, we started working on how to break that down. And what it amounted to is taking a a three dimensional cube, slicing it into three parts and then splitting those three parts onto the three screens. So you've got flat images, uh, but in three layers all working together and with just sparse kind of vector lines. It created what looked like a fully three-dimensional cube, and no one knew how it did it. It was just blowing people's minds at the show. But it was really just flat imagery um, with very careful lighting and presentation to create an illusion. And that's, that was the best of what we would do, is create really cool illusions that people would have to ask, how the hell did you do that?
0: Yeah, I mean, God, I I, just hearing you explain that was like, oh, okay, yeah, Um, and I think that was also brilliant too because it was this incredible visual show uh, showstopper that is kind of for a song that was new at the time. People, you know, didn't really know it well. It wasn't a single, you know, so it keeps people like really paying attention to a song like that.
1: Yeah, well, that that was always a a strategy of Trent's that that he was very passionate about, and it was very effective, which was. you save the real visual bombast, not for Head Like a Hole, which everyone's going to fucking get excited about, jump around to anyway. Yeah, March but, of the Pigs but needs but no
0: visual, really. Exactly, yeah. It's
1: just a bunch of strobes and, and let it happen. Um, but songs that are new or songs that are really slow, you know, when he we wanted to play stuff from Ghosts, which was very unusual for a big arena rock show um, or when you know something like disappointed which is kind of mid-tempo non-single from the new album so those are the times where it'd be like okay let's really blow the visuals out on this one to keep people watching and then you know they they absorb the song in a way they might not have if they were just like oh, i don't know this one new song um, Trent always talked about wanting to avoid the part in the concert where he looks out and can see that everyone's thinking, oh, it's a good time to go get a beer, you know, <laughs> and kind of funneling out like, oh, I don't know this song. Great. I can go get a beer, take a piss, and I won't miss anything. I'll, I'll get back before closer, you know? <laughs> so the idea was to keep um, enough narrative dynamics and visual dynamics in the set list that when you got to a song like Disappointed that you'd never heard before and you're thinking, this is a good time to take a take a dip out into the lobby, you, you can't because you're like, wait, what the fuck is happening on stage right now?
0: So what are some other, uh, like live concert visuals that you've found impressive over time? Um, not that many. really. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I had to assume. <laughs> uh, uh, um, uh, always, you know, the wall, uh, is, is still kind of the number one for me. Um, uh, what they do on that on those tours is, is just remarkable and and has so many so many moving parts and elements that you know some, sometimes when we're trying to put something together on on, on those tours um it would seem like God damn it. it, we can never get this to work right. And it's like always oh, someone didn't push the button or the well, it's one screen went out at the wrong time or the sync is off. And then I look at what Roger Waters does and the amount of things that have to go right um, to make it all work. Um, that would always blow my mind and just like inspire me. I'm like, okay, we can, we can do more. We can keep pushing. We can keep going on this and, and add some of these things that we were perhaps
0: hesitant um, to add to the show. Do you have any interest in going back to do this sort of work again in the future? I would at some point,
1: yeah i i um, I've kind of been moving in into um, just doing my own stuff, um, which I really like. But there's definitely an energy of of doing live shows that I miss. You know, you don't, no matter what you put out into the world as an artist or creator, you rarely get the opportunity to watch people experience it for the first time, you know, and I, I miss the, the energy of this room full of people. And I, I was fortunate enough that my work was done once each show started, you know, I wasn't running the lighting board or anything. I was there to watch the show and take notes and and work on improvements for next time and, and stuff like that. So I got the experience of watching people see the work we'd done and experience it and watch the jaws drop and hear the cheers and that type of energy. You don't get from pretty much any other medium, you know, I guess you, I guess if you make a movie, you can go um, sneak into the crowd on opening night and, and see something like that. But for most things you do as an artist, you never get that visceral reaction from people. So I do miss that, that excitement of creating something and, and throwing it in front of thousands of eyeballs f- for the first time
0: have you done this sort of work with anyone besides Trent?
1: No, no. I, I kind of felt like, you know, there are a couple of bands I was talking to and I did some like, you know, concert visuals for some friends bands here and there, but I kind of felt like a big part of what made it work and what made it fun was Trent as a creator and, and how we work together. And I just kind of felt like, I don't really want to do this with some artists that I'm going to be, it's going to be a hassle and I'm going to be fighting with the whole time. And it just didn't, didn't seem like it was ever going to match up with that. And it wasn't my desire in, in terms of a career to just bounce around from artist to artist doing things. So um, I haven't really done it.
0: Right. I guess the the point here is that you didn't really want to do work for hire because at the work you're doing with Trent, you were a full collaborator. Yeah. Yeah,
1: exactly. I mean, it didn't, it just wasn't, it wouldn't have been the same type of experience, I don't think, and um, and it felt like since I'd been doing it for so long, um, I was kind of interested in just pursuing my own work uh, after all that time doing stuff for Nine Inch Nails. But um, it, you know, it really it really made a difference having a kind of long term creative partnership where it could grow and ideas could evolve, and we did get those opportunities to to take things that we learned and come up with new experiments and it was all very hands-on. It was very DIY. It was, um, it was very small. Our team was really small. Um, we did everything in house as much as possible. It it kind of felt like a small startup Uh, at nine inch nails all all the time. And, and I don't know that I would get that experience with another artist unless I spent lots of time working
0: with them. So, What has your life been like your artistic life been like since you've uh, parted ways? Um, I was kind of just
1: like wandering for a while, like not really sure what to do with myself. Um, a lot of things changed in my life and ended up taking off in an RV with my now wife for, um, a couple of years, just traveling around, living in the forest, being offline. (laughs) And it was, it was great. Honestly, it was very cathartic. You picked an amazing time to go offline. Well, I came back, I came back right, uh, right in 2016, the election.
0: Okay. I take that back then.
1: (laughs) Yeah. No, no, I, I had the timeline wrong. (laughs) No, since, since then I've just been, I've been online and it's been terrible. (laughs) I I miss being offline, (laughs) but, um, yeah, so I did that for a while and then, and moved up uh, to the Northwest where I grew up and just started, um, started trying to figure out, um, all these different things that had been like, kind of, in the back of my mind for so many years that I wanted to do, but never had a chance to do them because I was working um, so heavily full time with the nails camp, and, and just started working on those. And one of them, I always wanted to do a comic book, and that came out um, earlier this year. And that's called nice. High Level it's called high level Yeah, it came out on vertigo comics right in February. So just in time to get completely um, <laughs> forgotten, <laughs> but um, I'm going to, am going to circle back around to that next year and um, writing pitches, uh, getting more into writing and also just being like establishing a completely kind of independent um, creative space where I can just kind of do anything I want and have a lot of versatility
0: in that world. So that's been really nice. Do you have an interest in doing comics where you're doing the art yourself? Um, Only in minor
1: roles. Uh, mainly, I'm just not fast enough as an artist. <laughs> I'm Take mm. way too long. You know these these guys who are professional comic artists is what they do, and they're so they're so fast at what yeah, they cool. do. It's incredible. The, so the artist
0: can, on that was uh, Barnaby Begenda. Am I saying that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, Barnaby Begenda, and um, he worked very. Uh, our colorist, Rom- Romulo Fajardo Jr., he was very important to it as well because um, um, Barnaby actually just does pencils. He doesn't do inks. So we had no inker on the book. And so when Romulo comes in and colors it, he basically paints over the pencil work and really brings out a lot of detail that way. So it, it has a very unique look to it that these these two who have worked together a number of times created this kind of painterly look that doesn't look the same as a a lot of contemporary comics.
0: Right. Um, And you also, but you also have a, you do, you don't have glitch art and you, uh, so uh, have you, does that stuff like make its way into galleries or is that just kind of a thing that kind of exists on your own terms that you kind of sell yourself? I, you know, I was, I was so busy um,
1: with nine inch nails that I never, I never got into the gallery scene, you know, it's such a scene and it requires really kind of getting into that world. And I just never did. I was, I was making art for the projects we were doing with, with Trent and nails. And that was awesome for me because it, it got my creations out to this massive audience. And and I liked doing it for those, for that kind of um, medium. As opposed to just putting it in a gallery, so I just never got around to that, and <laughs> it might be something I want to look into um, with new bodies of work going forward. Um, but for right now, like I kind of developed this kind of reputation as uh, as a glitch artist going way back, um, and that's kind of a lot of what I still do. So the the kind of next step of it that we went into this year was taking all this glitch work that I've done and putting it onto apparel. Um, and it turns out that it works exceptionally well on, on all kinds of clothing and merch and stuff. So first, that's the first stop for, for my glitch work, but I think new bodies of work, I might, um, I might get into the gallery world now that I'm kind of known for glitch art after all these years. I was actually, I was going to do a, um, I had a number of things kind of dialed up for this year at the beginning that I was going to do. I was going to do this like, um, digital comic book thing for, um, for this metal tour. And, um, and then I was also working on this new body of work that kind of channeled back to stuff that I was doing for, with teeth, with nine nails. And I was thinking, you know, this is the type of thing that, that really shines in large format this might be the right thing to debut in a gallery. And then all these projects I had just completely, completely were annihilated by COVID. So um, just changed gear for this year, but really hoping that, that art and and experiences in the real physical world are going to return at some point.
0: Has uh, anything been fruitful for you in this period? This uh, being in lockdown. It's been, you know, everyone talks about how
1: like, how broken our brains have been this year, how hard it is to concentrate, how bad it is for productivity. And that shit's real, man. It's really real. I mean, everyone I I talk to has kind of the same experience with just really struggling um, with productivity and and just even just thinking straight this year. Um, But for me, I I ended up channeling that into a lot of um, production stuff. Um, So we... We created our our whole merch store, Glitch Goods, this year, and that that type of work, um, designing all this kind of merch and stuff like that, has been something that I can do even while my brain is all over the place and and everything's so stressful and chaotic in the world. So I've been kind of hunkered down, getting that going, and that that's been a huge success this year. So that that's worked out for me in lockdown. But i I really I really hope that the next year is a little bit calmer, so I can actually, like, think in, like, open creative spaces again, you know?
0: Do you think that maybe uh, for you and also for other people that part of the problem is just, you know, not knowing what the work you're doing is for and how, when and how and all these things. When you have all those variables, all these question marks, it's hard to know what direction to go in or if you're doing something in vain.
1: It is. Uh, it really is. Uh, my, my plan coming into... the beginning of this year's my, my book was coming out. And after that I was just going to like keep my plate open and just create, just like do raw creation stuff, make some new art, write some new things and just kind of see what happened, which, which is like a really great way for me to come up with things, you know, without any pressure to know where it's going. And then when everything hit the fan, um, it's like my whole brain had to rewire its priorities of like suddenly, I don't know where my next job is, I don't know where my next paycheck's coming from, and these like these really like loose open minded creative sessions that I wanted to go into that didn't have any destination necessarily that felt stressful now, you know because it it's suddenly it's not a time to be like getting into something that's gonna take three years and you don't know where it's gonna go so. I shifted gears and started working on stuff that was very like instantaneous and had a had a direct market of how it was going to be released, where it was going to go, and how it was going to be sold. And I think that's been a helpful way for me to get through this year. It hasn't been, you know, a creative year for me in terms of new concepts and stuff, but I'm getting
0: through adaptively. What has your relationship with music been like in this time? Uh, lately, I've been listening to your playlists. Actually, oh
1: well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I kind of I got really like damaged by my couple years um, in, in the forest, traveling in the RV because we just, you know, we m- a lot of time we didn't have internet or anything, and we just went like full classic rock all the time. Like we went full RV life, just seventies rock, <laughs> and <laughs> and I. I used to be like the guy who was up on every new fucking indie band and everything that was going on in music. Um, and I completely lost myself to dad rock. (laughs) (laughs) Like what in particular were you listening to? Um, like it just any, I'd have to pull up a a playlist for you to really give an idea but Just like, we would just go down deep pathways of like seventies road trip music and, and, um, like stuff that I would never have thought I would listen to, but it just felt so right. You're driving a motorhome down down the highways through the backwoods of Canada, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, and and that I, I still haven't quite dug myself out of that uh, out of that old music thing that I've been in. So I've been enjoying listening to your playlist to try and reconnect with current music as much as I can, so I don't just go. F- full dad and have no idea what the kids are listening to anymore.
0: <laughs> That's because I feel like so much of the ones I've made have been like really kind of like my own way of like, you know what? Let's just spend some time in the past. Cause I feel like yeah. it like spending a lot of time thinking about the past or just uh, absorbing this stuff is a way I find very useful to just kind of get out of the present, you know? It's yes.
1: Just, uh, and, and that might be what it is too, is that I, it's, it's sometimes, um, you know, trying to search for and like absorb and understand new music feels like a, um, an activity that you're doing. And most of when I'm listening to music is when I'm doing my work or or something else. And you find that like, to just like, pad your brain with some comfort, you go back in time to, you know, to stuff that you, that you know, or, or sounds like stuff that, you know.
0: Yeah. I I think for me, it's also, I like to try to, understand some things about the past, uh, through kind of creating these contexts. So like a good example of that is the one I made. That was like the, the yuppie music one. I love that one. Yeah. And that one is just me trying to understand like a, this little wedge of my own history. That's like not even necessarily my own history. Cause that wasn't really anything my parents listened to. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I think I've just kind of developed this fascination with like, what was the adult world of my childhood? Right, right. You know, what, like, what would it be like to be like my age, but in 1988, you know? Yeah, yeah.
1: That's a, that's a good way of thinking about it because that stuff seeps into who you are when you're growing up, but you don't have the context for it at all, you know? You, you, like a lot of those songs I, I know very well, but I don't really know what kind of scene they were coming out of or what they meant, you know, if you were an adult music listener at the time. And, and the, so that's that's what I like about your playlist. They kind of tell stories about the history of music in in a in a way that I enjoy.
0: Yeah, well, one of the conclusions I've kind of come to about the the late '80s, kind of through the early '90s, is that there is this kind of uh, striving towards sophistication in different sorts of ways. Um, where I think there was this kind of aspirational quality and. And it was about like trying to be a sophisticated adult who has, you know, interesting tastes and like, you know, and I guess you can kind of call that yuppie. You can call that a lot of different things, but I think the, the values of it was really about wanting to have this kind of like intelligent adulthood. And I feel mm-hmm. like that is something that just kind of vanished from culture at some point. Like, it, yeah. And in a, in a
1: healthy way, I think, I think it's, it's very nice for a lot of, uh, adults now to admit that they don't know fucking anything about anything. And that, <laughs> that I think is, that I think has been one of the kind of secrets to me, especially, um, you know, I, I would always be kind of thrown into new situations throughout my career. It would be like, Hey, uh, we're meeting with the, um, with the head of Sony pictures. They want some ideas for how to market this movie because they liked what we did on year zero. And I was like, uh, okay. And just going in and just riffing and like what, and I was feeling like, what the hell am I doing here? I don't know anything about this. Or when we went into work with beats music and we designed the whole beats music service, I'd never done that before. When we started working with HBO on a TV series, I don't know. I've never done a TV series, but you know, learning over time as you go into those things to not to just trust in the fact that you're there for a reason and also just realize that no one fucking knows what they're doing. Everyone's just like you, you, some people are better at faking it than others, but no one really fucking knows what they're doing. And I think that's a, that's a much more comfortable way to approach adulthood. Once you realize that everyone out there is basically thinking the same thing you are, um, that, that need to, to prove yourself in, in those sort of superficial ways disappears. And it's very freeing. I find,
0: ah, that's good advice for the listeners. I feel that's a good place to end. That's the we can't, we can't improve it from that. <laughs> Rob, thank you so know. much for doing this. Is there anything that you'd like people to uh, kind of look up or check out uh, while you have them on? Um,
1: well, we have, um, we have a really, really cool selection of uh, face masks um, at our glitch goods store, glitchgoods.com, all made with authentic VHS, Betamax, digital um, distortions and, glitch techniques that i've been refining for years so they look super cyberpunk and cool and they um they've been helping raise money for charity all year long so um go check them out
0: yeah and and high level in stores now yes yes if if you Uh, you need more apocalypse (laughs) you can check out high level (laughs) yeah and and actually um
1: we we just released a soundtrack to high level which is really cool um I'll have to send you the link to check it out. It, it, it just hit Spotify and Apple Music now. So these guys um, that I've been friends with through the Nin Camp for a long time, Stephen Alexander Ryan and Justin McGrath. Um, Stephen's from this band called The Black Queen and has also been Trent's engineer and, and right-hand man on stage for many years. Um, they created an original score to high level that is designed to you listen to it while you read the book And it flows with the story chapter by chapter And it's an incredible Soundtrack whether you read the comic or not It's, it's, a, it's an amazing um, Piece of music That is really really cool When you do the full experience And it kind of turned the comic into a multimedia thing
0: Cool well, uh, So we'll, I'll, I'll put a bit of that music on the outro Of this for sure Sweet. Rob thanks so much for doing this Thank you